Well, on March the 10th of last year, a group of Yale University students held a free speech panel wherein they invited a conservative Christian lawyer from the Alliance of Defending Freedom. And they also invited a progressivist atheist lawyer from the American Humanist Association. The whole point of this panel was to show how these two opposing sides could learn to agree together even while they disagreed on other issues. And yet the panel never really got off the ground. Due to protesting students that disrupted the event and shouted over the conversation. And so a panel designed to talk about free speech couldn't even engage in free speech. All of us have heard some of these stories or stories like them in, the, in recent years. In fact, it's led the editorial board at the New York Times to say that, quote, America has a free speech problem. The first line of that paragraph or first paragraph of that article reads as follows. It says, quote, for all the tolerance and enlightenment that modern society claims, Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens of a free country. The right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned, unquote. It's led to these words that we now hear pretty regularly throughout the week. Cancel culture, words as weapons, thought police, fake news, gag laws, phobias have all been a regular part now of our weekly grammar. We used to hear a great deal about the need for a new kind of tolerance, but even that kind of language has since eroded in the face of the culture wars and the tribalistic polarization that has since resulted. And as we've been in this moment, there have been many that have asked the question, how did we get here? How did all this begin? Why is it we're here? What might we do about it? Why has so many become so sensitive and antagonistic to differing ideas such that we can hardly live alongside of one another anymore? How did we get here? Well, friends, in an possible attempt to be overly simplistic, I think the answer is in some ways simplistic. The reason why we are so having so much trouble in living alongside of each other is in particular those that with differing ideas. The reason why is the same reason why husbands and wives, brothers and sisters and friends have had trouble living alongside of one another throughout history. No one likes correction. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. We'd rather lash out when accused of some wrongdoing than to consider their ideas. In fact, I find it amazing, as I think back, that all of my brother's assessments of me growing up, they were all wrong. (laughs) And yet, wisdom teaches us, friends, the way of life seeks correction. And the way of folly rejects correction. So this morning, as we continue our series through Proverbs, just grabbing some of these themes we see in Proverbs, this morning we will come, we will consider something that is, again, a solution to some of these culture wars. But more than that, a solution to many of our own insecurities and anxieties and disputes among families and friends and even churches. This morning, we will consider the wisdom of pursuing correction in order that we might both personally and corporately become a community, a community of life and peace in Christ. That's what we'll do this morning. But before jumping into the book of Proverbs, allow me to do a little bit of leveling work before constructing the house. 
We'll need to understand why we don't like correction and its solution before we actually jump into the teaching on correction. And the way that we'll do some of that leveling work is by considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three points this morning. Here's the first. The gospel exposes and clothes our souls. The gospel exposes and clothes our souls. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, for those of you that are familiar with the teaching of the Bible. At the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, I don't know if you noticed that when Adam and Eve hid from God after they'd sinned, you'll notice the text does not say that they hid from God because they sinned. It's not what it says. Do you know what it says? The reason why they hid from God after they sinned, the text tells us, was because they were naked and ashamed. They hid from God because they were naked and ashamed. Now, before rebelling against God's good and gracious commands, they were, we were told in Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed. But now they are hiding from God because they, are, they understand themselves to be aware of being naked and ashamed. Now, friends, this is an amazing and, uniqueful and uniquely insightful claim about the condition of humanity. What it's telling us from the very beginning is that when humanity embraces the self as God, when we are separated, that is, from the safety and the protection of the God of love, we are then ushered into a world of being exposed which leads us to all kinds of shame and guilt, which then leads us to hide ourselves from God and one another. To be in sin is to be uncovered and seen for all that we are not instead of all that we were made to be. Many of us have had that horrifying dream, right, of showing up to work or school without any clothing on, right? Or even worse, some of us have had that Scary thought of being exposed, having all of your insecurities, all of your anxieties, all of your failures known to people. The greatest fear outside of death itself is this idea of being in in many ways naked, laying bare, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and otherwise exposed, bare, divulged, open, revealed. All of us. Nothing is more frightening than having all of our insecurities exposed. Which is why so many of us hide behind degrees, security clearances, clothes, sports accomplishments, good grades, physical appearances. We, we put on that proverbial mask because we're stare, scared to death of being known for who we really are. I've said this from the pulpit many times before. I hid my SAT scores from even my own wife. Because I was so ashamed, so ashamed of what people might think of me. Growing up, I was sensitive to always being shorter than everybody else. For about six months to a year, when I was bald at 25, I was kind of ashamed of that. I now don't care about being bald anymore. It's kind of convenient. But there's always something, right, for us to be sort of insecure or ashamed of. Today, I, I, I'm sensitive to being wrong about something that I know, I feel like I should know about. In one way or another, we are most fearful of being exposed because then we would be ashamed. And so we try to cover up ourselves with makeup or degrees or clothes or accomplishments. Or sometimes we try to cover up ourselves by just going along with the crowd so that others would like us. But friends, it never works. It never works. 
Deep down, we kind of know that. But we keep playing the game, keep putting the mask on, keep going along with the crowd, thinking eventually it will work. And so what we need is, friends, is what only God can provide. We need God to cover us so that we can be safe again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after Adam and Eve run from God, what do we find that God does? I know this. You'll see Genesis 3.21 behind me. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What a kind God. Before they were naked and unashamed, they became, they sinned, they were naked and ashamed. And how does God respond? By covering them. By making a sacrifice of an animal and then covering them that they might not be ashamed. This, friends, is what the Lord is like. He sees us in all of our sin and shame. He knows us better than anyone. He knows it better than even you do because he knows your blind spots. And he knows that part of yourself that you don't really let yourself go to anymore. He knows all of that. He sees it all and he makes a sacrifice and covers you with it. In love, God, that's right, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, the one of whom we offended, that God, the one in love made us for himself, the one we rebelled against, leaving the safety and healthy confines of his realm, the one we pridefully went our own way with, uh, leading us to more shame and guilt. He, that God, in love, does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He makes a sacrifice and provides us with a kind of covering so that we would no longer be naked and ashamed. He makes a sacrifice and provides us with a covering. This, friends, is what the gospel does. The gospel is so brutally honest about the human condition like no other worldview is. Unlike Judaism, unlike Islam... Unlike even Roman Catholicism and Mormonism, yes, even unlike secularism, which has its own creed and believes that at some level we are kind of basically good and kind of make ourselves there. Unlike all of those, the gospel uniquely begins with this savage yet honest truth that we all kind of know but don't talk about. The gospel begins with this savage truth about our humanity. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12 lays it out very clearly. That none is righteous. This is apart from Christ. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Friends, there is no superficiality in the gospel. None. No shallow graduation day speeches that tell you all you need to do is be yourself and work hard and you'll get all your dreams. It doesn't do that. It's honest with us, the gospel is. The gospel cuts us down, brings us to the mirror and says, this is who you are apart from me. You've got no hope for everlasting joy. Your choices, the gospel tells us, apart from Christ, your choices are regularly prideful, selfish, greedy, sensual. And no amount of good works and good intentions or even religiosity is going to get you on the rack track. Because, God says, apart from me, you are what Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says you are. 
Apart from me, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, the devil himself. You live in the passage of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. That's God's honest truth of who we are apart from Christ. God knows us far better than anyone else. He sees everything and calls it what it is because he's honest. And then, amazingly, he moves into the neighborhood. He moves into, gladly moves into our own hearts and love and covers us by his grace, with his righteousness for those who believe. He gives, God gives his mercy by giving us a covering taking our shame and giving us his righteousness, giving us that covering like we saw in the garden of Adam and Eve. He, Jesus, this is no insignificant event in the passion narrative, becomes naked, hung on a cross, bearing our shame and our guilt on the cross, taking our guilt, taking our punishment on himself, on the cross, And then by grace through faith to the one that trusts in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, he then transfers his righteousness to the believer, counting it righteous upon him. So that now a a fool like Nathan can be counted righteous, can be counted adopted gladly into his family. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not in ourselves, in him. It's amazing. God did this for us. So that now in Christ, we don't have to have shame. What was it we learned from Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so here's what that means when it comes to correction. Here's what that means. For the Christian, for the one repenting and believing on Christ alone for salvation, here's what that means. Our life began with correction. The best thing about us, the most hopeful news, the most orienting of things in our lives, our everlasting joy began with a word of correction. Began with the word repent. It's the basic piece. That was Jesus' first words. He comes out and says, repent and believe the gospel. Our lives began with correction. And so the fact that the Son of God had to move in and not only die, but die a horrendous death and satisfy the penalty for my sin, that teaches me that I have even more to be ashamed about than I thought. And so our life begins with correction when we agree of God's assessment of ourselves. We agree that we deserve judgment We agree that we need correction. We need reorientation. And then I agree with God's justification of me. That I am who I am in Christ. I am no longer in the old Adam. I am no longer in the old Nathan. I've become, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. The old man was crucified, right? What Paul wrote in Galatians is true of me. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that lives, but it is I that Christ that lives in me. No one, friends, could ever criticize me more than God did on the cross. When he bore my shame and my guilt, there is my penalty. 
But he dealt with it all. It's all been dealt with. And by grace through faith in Christ, I'm now counted innocent, counted righteous, counted holy, counted loved, while also still being fully known. No one knows me better than God, and no one loves me more than God. And no one's more happy to have me in his family than him, even while knowing what a mess I am. That is love. That is safety. That is security. That is power. Therefore, if I have been fully exposed in Christ at the cross, you, Christian, have been fully exposed in Christ at the cross, and at the same time I've been fully covered by Christ's righteousness in Christ on the cross, then what do I have to fear from any one of you and the criticism you might have of me? And vice versa. What do we have to fear? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us, right? Paul writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice the present active tense. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. I'm going to say that again. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Guys, do you see how the gospel both exposes all of our guilt and shame, all of our fears, all that we try to keep away from others, and then it covers us while dealing with that guilt and shame? So that we, in the love of God, can now live freely in the world, no longer fearful of being exposed. Therefore, what then do we have to fear in correction? Nothing. We have nothing to fear. In fact, not only do we have nothing to fear, we have everything to gain in correction. And so far as it is along that path of wisdom that leads us to life. And so just brief application point for us here, church family, is this. Put on the armor of God and the gospel. Put it on every single day. Put on the gospel. Meditate and rehearse it, right? Put on the helmet of the, the Puritans of old used to put on their hat. Remember the, the, the helmet of salvation. Put on your shirt and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on your belt and think about the belt of truth. Put on that shield, which is the shield of righteousness. Wield that sword, which is the word. Put on the gospel shoes of peace every single day. Arming ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that we could live secure, free in the world. Not fearing anything in particular. Fearing any correction. In the gospel, you've never been more exposed, more criticized. And in the gospel, you've never been more covered, healed, and knowingly loved and welcomed. Gladly. Which frees us. To not just take correction, but to welcome it. Point two. Welcome correction and live. Welcome correction and live. Friends, the reality is that while we are, we Christians are righteous, while we are counted righteous in Christ, we still need to grow up into who we are in Christ, right? If you're not a Christian, maybe that's... New news to you. Maybe you thought we Christians thought we were perfect. We definitely know we're not. It's quite the opposite. We as Christians are readily aware of our insecurities and our sins and our failures. The difference is, is we are counted righteous in Christ. And so that's the salvation. Sanctification is we're trying to grow up into that. Right? That's the grow up. So we are becoming in practice who we are declared to be in truth. This is the story of Cinderella. Right? She was a peasant gal, I think. Anyway, she was treated really bad. She marries the prince. She gets his name. She gets his inheritance. She gets all of her riches. But she's got to learn how to be a princess. Even though she already is part of the royal family. 
She doesn't really know it, not really experiencing it. That's us in the gospel. We're learning how to grow up into that righteousness. Therefore, since we are learning how to grow up into that righteousness, we need correction to grow up into it. And it's the wise man and woman that welcomes corruption. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get into Proverbs. Again, this is a little bit new for us. We typically work through books of the Bible. Proverbs, we're just grabbing these themes and looking at a bunch of them. So I'm going to to read a whole bunch of Proverbs here. You're going to see it on the screen behind me. You're going to read a bunch of them. You're going to say, Nathan, that's a lot. I can't keep track of it. I get it. Listen, one theme. All I want you to see in these Proverbs I'm about to read is just one theme. That the wise man and woman welcomes correction. Just pick up on that when I read that. Okay, here we go. Proverbs 12.1, and by the way, Stephen Ladone thought this word wasn't in the Bible, but actually I'm reading it straight away here. Proverbs 12.1, where are you at, Stephen? There you go. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Bible's word, not mine. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13.1, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. 13.18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof, reproof is another word for correction, whoever heeds reproof is honored. 15.5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent, is wise. 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction. Why? That you may gain wisdom for the future. 19.25, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. 27.9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. One more. 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And picking up on that last verse right there. If you are a sinner justified in Christ, needing more sanctification, then I understand that passage to straightforwardly teach that if I am a true friend, I will occasionally need to wound you. Meaning, I'm going to need to cut hurt in a way by offering correction in love if you and I are going to increasingly know and enjoy the life of Christ. And the opposite is also true, right? To not be a friend would be to not wound, to not correct, which of course goes against the counsel in which we are so often told. Right? Which tells now, just affirm, 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 affirm. Don't say anything bad. That's not loving. But Proverbs calls that foolishness. Wisdom sees the cancer in a friend's life and loves them by carefully taking a scalpel and wounding to cut it out so that they'll get healthy. And the friend receiving that wound, that faithful wound, Like the cancer patient, knowing it's hard, they're glad to take the cut because they know that it's going to bring healing. That's the wise person. 
And so if we're going to walk down this road of wisdom that leads to life in Christ, we're going to have to listen to instruction, listen to knowledge, wish, uh, listen to correction and discipline. Because we know that within us all is a kind of cancer that the soul, that within our souls, that disturbs us and so easily can disorient us from the good life in Christ. And the faithful friend, the faithful church family speaks a better word in order to carefully remove that cancer, that prospect of cancer coming. Wisdom is seen in giving and receiving godly correction. And so the question that you and I need to ask ourselves in this moment, and by the way, I'm sticking myself on all of this, you and I, I got to do this too. The question that we need to ask ourselves in this moment is, am I the kind of person that welcomes correction? Have I presented myself as a person that would be another way of saying this. Have I presented myself as a person that's kind of difficult to speak into? Another way of asking that is by evaluating whether or not you're pursuing humility and fighting against pride. Because to be humble is to recognize who you are in light of who God is. And to be prideful is to neglect who God is and boast in who you think you are, therefore making correction more difficult. So again, am I the kind of person that welcomes correction or have I presented myself as a person that would be difficult to speak into? Am I pursuing humility? Doesn't mean I've arrived. And am I pursuing humility or am I embracing pridefulness? And if you're not sure, then the path of wisdom would have you to ask someone that you know, love, and trust and knows you. Ask them to speak openly and honest with you. Say to them, Am I the kind of person that you feel like you can be honest with when you see me making some bad decisions? Or am I the kind of person that you feel like you have to kind of walk on eggshells around? That'd be a good question to ask someone you know, love, and trust. For those of you that are married, that's probably a good place to start with your spouse. For members of this church, you can talk to your community group members about this. Matter of fact, this might be a great reason for two or three of you to get together this week. Go have dinner, enjoy one another's company, and y'all ask these questions to each other. Get together, have a meal, go to Cactus Cantina, go to Chipotle, I don't know. Go over there and just sit down and go, all right, we're going to meet and we're going to talk about whether or not are we the kinds of people that we feel like we can open ourselves up to and speak into, or are we not? And if you're on the receiving end of that question, if you're one of the people, someone comes to you and says, do you feel like you can speak truth into me? Or am I kind of hard to speak truth in? If you're on the receiving end, someone's asking you that. Know one thing and do three things. I'm going to give you a little bit more practical stuff right at the end. But if you're on the receiving end, when someone asks you that, know one thing, do three things. First off, know that someone is asking you, whoever's asking you that, they are making themselves very vulnerable to you. Know that. They are bearing their souls. They are walking into the operating room knowing you have scalpels. When they ask that question, you, can, you need to know that. And the first thing that you need to do then is recognize that vulnerability by thanking them for allowing you to be entrusted into that evaluation. Thank them for entrusting themselves to you. Second thing, be honest with it. 
You do them no favors by lying to them or not telling them the whole truth. And I struggle with this sometimes. I don't want people to not like me, just like anybody else. But I know, like, someone invites me into that, and I'm like, all right, how can I kind of tell them, like, two-thirds of it, but not tell them? No, just be honest. Be honest. If they come off as prideful and prickly and not easy to speak into, while at the same time uh, not seeking wisdom for their lives, you need to tell them that. That's a way to love them. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So what it says, you aren't a friend if you aren't faithfully wounding in order to speak the truth in love. But the third thing you need to do, you need to be honest. You need to speak the truth. So you need to speak the truth. You need to thank them, speak the truth. And thirdly, pray with them afterwards. Pray with them. Don't leave them in your own assessment. Nathan Knight has been wrong in his assessments. I've said that to some of you. Don't leave them in your own assessments. Bring them to God by rehearsing the gospel for them in the presence in their presence through prayer. Bring them back to God. Bring that conversation to God in the gospel by praying. And so whatever you do, though, as Proverbs says, get wisdom, which means you need to get correction, which means you need to welcome it by inviting it from those that you love, that love Christ and love you with the gospel. And so we've said so far the gospel exposes our souls and then clothes us, our souls, in Christ. Rest in that gospel. You've been more criticized and more loved. Second, we've said we need to welcome correction, correction that we might grow up into the life we have in Christ. Third point, the opposite. Reject correction and die. You reject correction and die. Once again, I'm going to read a bunch of Proverbs here. Just look for one theme. One theme is you reject correction. You distance yourself from that correction in some way. Bad stuff happens. That's all we're going to hear in these passages. Once again, Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12.15. Again, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 15.5. A a fool despises his father's instruction. 15.10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof, correction, will die. 1532. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. That's very opposite of what we're told nowadays. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 18, 12, and 13. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, is proud. But humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. Nathan, I've been concerned about this decision you made. Well, you know, I don't care. You know, just break in. But no, Nathan, you do, I don't care. You don't know. That's folly. Proverbs twenty six twelve. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Last one. Proverbs twenty six sixteen. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So summing all of this up, if you are isolating yourselves, be that physically, emotionally, intellectually, or spiritually, 
Wisdom says you're a fool. And the reason why is because you are foolish enough to trust in yourself as the source of wisdom and truth. Your own insight is to be more trusted than that of others. You don't need God's people to correct your life. You've arrived, as it were. You know better than most every other people about your own life, except for maybe the one or two or three people that you've surrounded yourself with that happen to agree with most every decision that you make. That's the definition of foolishness that leads to varying forms of death. Could be physical death, could be spiritual death, could be emotional death. But isolating yourselves from the collective wisdom of a community of gospel-formed people is foolishness, not wisdom. Because it is to trust yourselves, not others, of whom Christ has entrusted himself into and therefore cultivating death. Now, friends, this is what I've been talking about regarding this, uh, this kind of toxic nature of our cultural moment. Our tribalistic moment has created echo chambers where people quarter themselves off in different communities and then demonize their opponents by believing the worst about them, not the best, instead of listening, considering. And so rejection of correction can not only be individual, it can also be corporate. It could be a community of sorts. Insert almost any uh, service industry, especially in the public service arena, and it would be easy to see how this has happened. People rejecting any correction by isolating themselves from rival ideas and then just pitching grenades against their enemies, never really listening to each other. And friends, that's not only true of the right and the left of America, it's also true for some gospel churches. It is foolishness to believe that yourself or we as a church are better than another group of Christians by thinking that since they're not like us or they're not like you, we have nothing to learn from them. That's also foolishness. You know, like, so maybe like the urban Christians, we got nothing to learn from the rural Christians. And the rural Christians have nothing to learn about the urban Christians. Or the Baptists have nothing to learn from the Anglicans or the Anglicans from the Baptists. Or the megachurches from the small churches and vice versa. Or the Christians in California from the Christians in Alabama. The expositional pastors, right, from the topical pastors. I guess that's me too now, right? Maybe that shows I'm learning. I didn't intend that. But But maybe the contemporary music churches versus the congregational singing churches. Whatever it is. Like we we quarter ourselves off against them and we kind of fire at them and say they're kind of less than us, kind of below us. We don't listen to them. We don't engage with them. We think ourselves better than them. Friends, if we are united in the gospel, and that's a big if. If we are united in the gospel, assuming that we are, insofar as we are, We shouldn't quickly reject correction from these groups, but instead the church should be models in this moment of listening to one another and weighing out what they're saying, considering it, praying about it, and making adjustments when and where necessary, this is important, based upon our collective understanding of Christ's word. Read that again because it's an important qualifier. We shouldn't quickly reject the correction from these groups, but instead the church should be leaders to listening to each other, learning from one another, making adjustments when and where necessary based upon our collective understanding of Christ's word. That's so important because, guys, listen, there are times we do need to reject correction. There are times for that. We do not welcome correction when that correction is opposed to Jesus Christ. We don't welcome it. 
He is our life. He is our reward because he is our covering. We trust him more than we do anyone else. Everything and everyone else is broken. He's the only one that isn't. He entered into our world and wasn't ever broken. Therefore, insofar as any correction rejects the counsel of Christ and his life-giving commands, yes, we reject that correction because it rejects the cornerstone on which we stand. Rejecting the counsel of Christ is like rejecting gravity. It only hurts us in the end. Listen to this from Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Writing to those that are trusting in Christ, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's the word. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So in other words, to reject the clear teaching of the apostles and the prophets on Christ is to reject the foundation and cornerstone that God is building in the church. Everybody builds on something, some kind of word, some guidance. Everyone has a ground of authority by which they appeal to, to build their lives on. Ours, as Christians, is Christ, as given to us in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Therefore, we do reject any counsel that straightforwardly rejects that counsel. But that, of course, leaves tons of room on many things, doesn't it? Still leaves open on tons of room to be corrected. Who should we date or keep dating? Who should we marry? Where should we live? What church should we go to? How should we involve ourselves in that church? How should we handle our money? Where should we send our kids to school? Right? How can we involve ourselves with our neighbors and be evangelistic and yet still not calling evil good or good evil? How do we do all of this? Right? There are a thousand things that are so-called gray matters that Christ gives us guardrails to, but he doesn't give us tracks to. And since we are covered in Christ, trusting him, believing him for life and for liberty, knowing that while we are counted righteous in him, we're still growing up in him. Therefore, we need correction. We can't reject it because we are not the arbiters of truth and wisdom ourselves. Christ is. And he's given us his word, his people and his spirit to guide us down the paths of wisdom. Therefore, friends, if you're not a Christian. If you're not trusting and treasuring Christ, if you're sitting here maybe even going, I understood myself to be a Christian, but I'm not sure because there are clear and opaque commands of Jesus that I just won't listen to. Listen, friend, might I appeal to you this morning, receive the correction from Christ and turn from your sin and trust in him and follow him. If you're not a Christian, friend, I appeal to you in love and humility Take the correction of Christ this morning and turn around. Believe the truth. Agree, as we said earlier. Agree with his assessment of you apart from him. And then agree with him and his assessment of you in Christ. Agree with who you are apart from him and then run to Jesus and agree with the gospel truths of his justification on your behalf. This is the truth. Don't walk, keep walking down the paths of foolishness, friend. It only leads to death. 
you've probably already started to figure that out. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Look not to me. Look not even ultimately to the church. Look ultimately to Christ for salvation and for life. He's exposed you and he will cover you in faith. Do not reject the corrective wisdom of the gospel, but welcome it by repenting, believing, trusting and treasuring Jesus and following him. And for those of us that have been corrected by the gospel, keep getting corrected by the gospel. By letting the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ and the people of Christ correct you. You and I are not God. You and I have not arrived. You and I need correction. So go get it. There's no reason to fear being exposed. Christ has already exposed you and he's already covered you in his righteousness. There's no reason to fear. So step on into the light. Yes, it's going to be difficult, but step on in. Invite correction from Christ. Invite it from other people that love Jesus alongside of you. Listen and live humbly under their guidance so that you would know wisdom that leads to life. Practically, and I'll end here. What does that look like? Real briefly, first off, a little bit of practical counsel for those giving the counsel. I've already given a little bit. Here's a little bit more. For those giving the counsel, giving the correction, I leave you with 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. If you want to know any, just go get that. Just write that verse down and go do that. Here it is. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. In other words, the Lord's servant is not always looking to get in a fight. Not always just kind of uh, all the time. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Listen, here it comes. Correcting opponents, how? With gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So, first thing, we correct with gentleness. Yes, there are times for firmness. Yes, there's times for even righteous indignation. But often that's not the case. Learn to correct in gentleness. And friends, if you are unable to do that, or you enjoy correcting people because it makes you feel good about yourself, don't do it. Don't correct people and wait to get more mature. If you enjoy correcting people all the time, just don't do it. And ask God to change you and then do it later. But insofar as you're able to correct, do so in gentleness with an aim towards love and obedience in order that they might know Christ better. That he might be glorified and they might increasingly know life. Second thing I would say to those giving correction, ask a lot of questions. Ask, maybe not, ask some questions. Don't just assume stuff. Ask some questions. I can't tell you how many times I've screwed up because I saw something and I went and I'm like, uh, and then they're like, oh, by the way, Nathan, uh, right? My bad, dude. My, I'm sorry, right? Ask questions. Draw them out. Proverbs talks about this, drawing out the heart of a man. Ask questions. Listen to the answers. Don't just say, well, Nathan said to ask questions. Here's some questions, but I can't wait to get you. Right? No. Ask the questions. Listen to the answers. Before drawing conclusions. Fight to believe the best about them. This is one of the problems we're having. Fight to believe the best. Don't believe the worst about everybody, especially in here amongst membership, right? Fight to believe the best about one another. And then correct in gentleness. Ask questions, listen, give correction with gentleness towards a love of Christ and neighbor. For those that are receiving that correction, those, on the, uh, those getting cut, those getting the faithful wounds, four things I would say very briefly. 
First off, ask that question that we talked about earlier. Ask others if you're easier to speak into and listen to what they say, which leads me to the second thing. Invite correction. Invite it. You can ask guys in my community group, Henry, right? Who else is in there? Hector. Who else is in my community group? I know who my community group is, but I'm up here preaching. So, you know, whoever else is in my community group, you can ask them that if they did that, right? Nathan's back there. I see you, Nathan, right? There's other brothers in my community group. Joseph is in my community group. Ask them if I've done this. You can, they should be able to bear testimony. I say, will you guys please, I invite you to correct me. Invite correction. And kids, let me speak to you. It's, your parents are so happy. It's family worship month. Here you are, all right, kids. I want you to know something. This is really important. I'm dead serious about this. God gave you your parents to correct you, to love you, to lead you along the way. Your parents, they are imperfect people. Trust me, I pastor them, I know. So I get it. But they intend good for your life. So kids, listen to your parents. And here's a crazy thing you might do this afternoon. This is going to blow their mind if you do this. Go to your parents and tell them, I know, mom, dad, that you mean to help me. And I invite correction from you. I know. I know. It sounds nuts. Like, if that happens, somebody come and tell us, right? It, 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 maybe it'll only happen one or two times, but it'll be great if it happens. Right? Kids, let your parents instruct you. They mean to do you well. Yes, they get it wrong all the time. Or maybe not all the time. I hope not all the time. But you know what? So do you. But God gave them to you to lead you on the path of wisdom that leads to life. So kids, listen to folks. And then brothers and sisters in Christ, also invite correction. Tell a brother, tell a sister. Again, maybe grab some meal together this week and sit around some chips and salsa and say, man, I invite you to speak into my life. I'm I'm about to make this decision on this move or this job or this relationship. Man, will you speak into me about this? Because here's what's going to happen. When you invite somebody into their life, they're going to feel more free to do it. Because most people are like, they got the knife. You know, the the Bible says I should cut. Faithful are the wounds of the friend. And they're like, eh. If I had to do surgery, Joseph, like I would have a hard time, but I don't want to hurt you. But right. But if you invite the correction, it's going to be easier for them to speak into you. Third thing, listen to the other person's correction. So when they give it to you, right, listen to it. Don't dismiss it out of hand. Don't have your mind made up. And then like the second they counteract it, like, boom, I ain't listening to that. In other words, don't just seek correction to just affirm what you've already decided. No, listen to the correction. Remember Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears it, it's folly and shame. So if somebody's giving you an opposing insight and you're just shutting it down, you're not walking in the way of wisdom. So make sure and listen to those that pursue you, weighing it out. I'm not saying they're right, but weigh it out. Think about it. Consider it. Weigh it against the word. Go back to that sermon I preached three weeks ago about making decisions. Seek wise counsel. Weigh it against the word. Pray. And then fourthly, lastly. So we said ask. We said invite. We said listen. And now, fourthly, remember. Remember the gospel. You're safe in Christ. Remember, he's criticized you more than anybody else has in Christ on the cross. And you're safe. You're loved. You're known. You're secure. You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're safe. God will never leave you or forsake you. And so remember the gospel upon receiving that correction. You're safe. And so Restoration Church family, 
I want you to know this is the kind of church the elders of this church endeavor to foster. A church like this. That's speaking and correcting one another. This is one of the reasons, one of the glorious truths, I think, from Baptist churches, right, is we can be corrected from the members of this church. Unlike other church polities, we think the Bible teaches that. You're a priest, I'm a priest. We're equally priests. And so we can be corrected. We endeavor to foster a life together in the gospel that we would hold on to Jesus. Nathan's name is not as important as Jesus' name. His name is important. Mine's not at all. So let's hold on to Christ and have a kind of environment where we love and trust each other and speak into each other, correct each other, pray for each other, help each other out on the way. Because, right, this is what church membership is all about. This is why church membership is so important. Church membership says, here's my life. Here's what I believe. Here's what I'm living. Take a look at it. I want you to see it. And we're looking at that, right, opening it up and taking a look. And we're looking at each other. It's the beauty. Church membership is saying, I want to keep... Church To reject church membership is to say, I want to keep God's people at a distance. I'm going to kind of hold on to this. You can't see this. Church membership is to say, here it is. It's make yourself vulnerable. But to join a church is to walk the path of wisdom by saying, here's my life. Help me follow Jesus, and I'm going to help you follow Jesus. And so, beloved, I speak to you, Restoration Church family. Let's continue to be a gospel-formed people that are not afraid of gospel correction. But instead, we welcome it. Because we not only know that we need it, more than that, hopefully we want it. Because to be corrected in the counsel of Christ is to walk further in and further up into our life in Christ. And is there anything better than that? The resurrected life of Christ. So let's do it together, shall we? Let's pray and ask him for help.